0: Well, let's take our Bibles this morning and turn to 2 Thessalonians chapter 2 as we continue our study of the book of 1 Thessalonians, even though it's (laughs) 2nd. So, good. Got that out of the way. And again, we said the word for 2 Thessalonians is, is comfort. He's comforting them. He comforted them in persecution in chapter 1. And in chapter 2, he is correcting their wrong understanding of their eschatology, their end time events. And he is doing that for the purpose of comforting them again. And so he is, again, trying to calm them down from their understanding that they are in the day of the Lord. And so this morning, our text will be verses 13 and 14 of chapter 2 as we continue really in this vein of comfort and reasons why they are not in the day of the Lord. Paul writes beginning in verse 13, but we should always give thanks to God for you, brethren, beloved by the Lord, because God has chosen you from the beginning for salvation through sanctification by the spirit and faith in the truth. It was for this he called you through our gospel, that you may gain the glory of our Lord Jesus Christ. There ends the reading of God's word this morning. Join with me in prayer before we walk our way through this text this morning. Gracious Heavenly Father, we again thank you for your word and we thank you for giving it to us. And we thank you that it has recorded truths that we could not have gotten anywhere else because you have revealed to us who you are. And so this morning, as we look at the Word of God, we pray again that the Holy Spirit would teach us that he would open the truths of your Word. Help us to accept these words, Lord, and may they encourage us as we go forward in our Christian walk, I pray in your name. Amen. Now, if you've been at Bowmanville Baptist for any length of time, you have heard me say, the end ultimately determines the beginning. Actually, I said it the other way around. Mm. The beginning determines the end. The beginning determines the end. In other words, when you were created, God put you in a physical body, body and soul, on a physical earth and that will ultimately be your destiny in the future. When you, we die, when we all get to heaven, as we like to call it, we're actually not going to heaven. We're actually going to the new earth. The new Jerusalem will come down and we'll be seated on the new earth. So we have this idea that we're kind of going to heaven and we're going to this little space in the sky, but we're really not. We're really going to be given a new physical body that allows us to stand on a physical earth with our soul in our body, just like we did when we were created, just like we are doing now. And so we say the beginning determines the end. So too it is for us when it comes to salvation. The beginning of our salvation determines the end. In other words, because God has chosen us in eternity pass and set his love upon us means that there's no way that we can lose our salvation and ultimately we will receive all the blessings of salvation we will be in eternity with the lord jesus christ and we will gain the glory of our lord jesus christ in fact he says in verse 14 you have been called through our gospel that you may gain the glory of our lord Jesus Christ. That is your destiny. God has determined it in eternity past, and it is as good as already happened. You can't lose it. It's going to happen. And this should bring you joy as a believer, because you realize that you are not destined for wrath. You are not destined to face God for your sin. You are destined for the glory of the Lord Jesus Christ. Now Paul, as he has been going through chapter 2, we have alluded to the fact that he is again trying to calm the Thessalonians down because he had taught them in 1 Thessalonians that the rapture was going to take them out of the world, that they were not going to be facing God's judgment, that the day of the Lord was something that would not overcome them. They were of the light, they weren't of the night, and they would never face the wrath of God. But someone had sent them a letter, whether it was a letter or a message or a spirit, telling them that they were already in the day of the Lord, that the day of the Lord was present. And so they had lost their composure. They were emotionally distraught. They also had left the truth of what Paul had taught them and started to believe this lie. And so Paul really starts and goes through this section and says, calm down you can't be in the day of the lord don't be deceived you're not in the day of the lord the lord the day of the lord can't be here in fact he says the day of the lord can't be here until certain in fact you know you're not in the day of the lord because certain events must take place for you to be in the day of the lord there's going to be a great apostasy the man of lawlessness is going to be revealed and he says look around do you see any of those things happening And he says, unless those are taking place, you can't be in the day of the Lord. So remember, you're not there. And then he continues on after saying that, and he says, really, I want you to recognize the events that are going to take place. And as you see the Antichrist's career, you're simply not going to be afraid, and you're going to recognize that this is not for you. And so he explains the entrance of the Antichrist, that he cannot come until the restrainer and not be revealed until the restrainer is removed. We see that God will ultimately deal with him with his breath. We see that he will be empowered by Satan, and he will entrap those who will not believe the truth. And so he says to them, don't be ignorant, recognize what is going on with the Antichrist. And then he says, really, don't be unbelieving. Look at those who reject the truth, those who will, who will embrace a lie, those who will God will send a delusion on and God will judge will be those who what? Reject the truth. They will be those who will actually accept the Antichrist, who will think that he's the Messiah and they will be deceived. And so he says to them, Don't be unbelieving. You don't need to be panicked because you're not one of them. And so as we come to our passage today, Paul is really continuing on this idea that they are not going to face the wrath of God and he's still trying to comfort them and he still wants them to recognize that they can't be in the day of the Lord. They won't be in the day of the Lord and they won't face the wrath of God. And so he begins this section, really, with this little word, but. But. In contrast to those who came in verses 10, 11, and 12. Those who were deceived, who did not receive a love of the truth, who were deluded, who God sent the deluding influence on, that they would be judged because they took no pleasure in truth, but took pleasure in wickedness. He says, in contrast to them, you're different. In contrast to those who are on their way to be judged. He says, we should give thanks to God for you. He says, we ultimately should be giving thanks to God. And the idea here is is we have an obligation we're under obligation. A debt of, we have a debt of thanksgiving that we need to give God. God is due with thanksgiving. As we see what he has done in your life, as we have seen the salvation that he has given to you, we should give him what? Thanks. We should give him all glory. It's only morally right. It's morally fit to do so. Because as we look at this salvation that's been given to you we're going to notice something very obvious all of this is a work of God God is the one who saves men don't seek God men don't want God's salvation God is the one who reaches down and saves people and so it is only right therefore that God gets what the thanksgiving for it And so as we think of our salvation, as we think of what God has done in our lives, we recognize that our salvation isn't because we were smarter than anybody else. It's not because somehow we figured it out and we put all the pieces together. It's not just because it seemed like a better option for our lives because we had nowhere else to go. wasn't just because we decided, hey, hell is a bad place to go. If we're saved here today, if we're saved truly, it's because we recognize that God reached down and saved us. Ultimately, Ephesians 1.11 tells us the reason we are saved because of what? The kind intention of His will. Not ours, His and therefore God deserves all glory and honor and praise. And so Paul says, We should give thanks. We 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 have to give thanks because we see what God has done for you. And by implication, Thessalonians and Bowmanville Baptist Church, you too owe a debt of thankfulness and gratitude for God for saving you. And it should produce joy and love and thankfulness in our heart and praise to God. Now, as Paul goes through this passage now, he gives us five aspects of God's sovereign work in salvation that guarantee that we will never face the wrath of God. Five aspects of God's sovereign work in our salvation to assure us that we will never perish like those who have rejected the truth and have no love for it. The first aspect of God's sovereign work in salvation, we see that we are loved by God. He says, brethren, beloved by God. And again, he uses this this family term to call them brothers in Christ. There's a sense of endearment, a sense of family. And he says, brethren, beloved by God. God's work in salvation began with his sovereign, uninfluenced, undeserved love. His uninfluenced, undeserved love. Now we're not talking here a love that's some generic love. For God so loved what? The world that he gave his only begotten son, right? There's a sense in which God has a love for humanity. He has a love that ultimately gives common grace to all mankind. The rain falls on the just and the unjust. The sun shines, right? You have food in your stomach, a roof over your head. You listen to music, you have entertainment, you read books. All of these things are God's grace. You notice I didn't mention the phone, right? I left that out, the smartphone. So God, there's a certain love a level where God's love is manifest to everyone. But this is not the love that Paul is talking about. This love is the basis of his electing love. This is a love that he set upon us. It's a love that he set upon us in, in the past and still exists. It's a settled love. It's present with an unabated force. He cont- loves and continues to love. And he did it by a choice of the will. It's not that we were attractive. There was not something in us that God couldn't resist. He simply chose. He chose to put his love upon us. Knowing brethren beloved by God. 1 Thessalonians 1.4 Colossians 3.12 You have been chosen of God and what? Holy and beloved. God set his love on you. And so they are in a loving relationship with God because God himself has chosen. He has chosen for himself, for his own interests. God chose for no other reason than he is love and he set his love upon us. And again, it's not based on any merit of us. We're reminded of Israel in Deuteronomy chapter two, verse—I mean, Deuteronomy seven, seven. The Lord did not set His love on you, or nor choose you, because you were more in number than any people, for you were what the fewest of peoples. But because God loved you, and kept His oath and swore to your forefathers. He simply chose to love them. He set his love on them, not because they were something mighty, something great, but because he chose. And he chose you ultimately for his eternal glory and comfort. He did not choose you ultimately for you, God's ultimate purpose in your salvation and his loving you is not for you. It's for his glory. We must always keep that in mind. God is always about his glory. And he said his love. So flowing out of God's predetermined love is his sovereign choice of believers. Because God has chosen you what? From the beginning. God has chosen us. We're reminded in Malachi chapter 1, the oracle of the Lord to Israel comes from the prophet Malachi. And listen to what he says. I have loved you. I have loved you, Israel. I have loved you. But you say, how have you loved us? Was not Esau Jacob's brother? Why did you limit it to us? Why didn't you also love Esau? Jacob is the father of Israel. Esau, the father of Edom and Arabs why do you love us and not Esau the Lord says I have loved Jacob but I have hated Esau I made his mountains a desolation and appointment his inheritance for jackals of the wilderness through Edom he says we have been beaten down but we will return and build up the runes thus says the Lord of hosts they may build but I will tear down and men will call them the wicked territory and the people towards whom the Lord is indignant forever. You can try to do something on your own, but if you haven't set my love on you, it is useless. And then verse five, your eyes have seen this and you will say, the Lord be magnified. The Lord be magnified beyond the borders of Israel. God again does it so that he will what? He chooses and loves us so that he is, Magnified. Ephesians 1, in love he predestined us. In love he predestined us. He set his, pon, his love upon us, therefore he chose. And again, we must recognize it is an eternal act, completely uninfluenced by anything but by God's character and God's choice. Nothing that we had was attractive to him. And we know that he loves us because he what? He chose us. That's how we know. This is how we know because this love is a saving love. This is not just a, a love that is, looks at you and does nothing, but it's a love that moved him to choose us. Again, this is Reiterated in the New Testament. In Romans chapter 9, Paul even quotes this. Jacob I've loved and Esau I hated. And then Paul goes a little farther and he says, Do you think it's unfair? Do you think it's unjust? Do you think it's wrong that God has chosen some and not others? And then Paul gives a great explanation there. And he gives us all the reasons why right? He says, does the potter not have the right over the clay to do with it what he wants? He doesn't explain anything. God is God. And every choice that God makes and everything that God does is completely within his character, consistent with his love, consistent with his justice, consistent with his righteousness, consistent with his wrath. God's choice ultimately reflects all of God's character and it cannot be separated from it. And if you don't like it, it's not up for God to change because God does not answer to any other standard than himself and if he does it, it is just and right and we must accept it. Now we're still in a remnant of the flesh as believers and we certainly have a part of us that rises up to that. And yet we are called not to conform God to our image, but to conform our thinking to his. He says you are chosen from the beginning Revelation 13.8, all who dwell on the earth shall worship him, everyone whose name is not written from the foundation of the world in the book of life of Lamb who has been slain. In other words, your name was written in eternity past in the Lamb's book of life because God chose you before the foundation of the world. Again, Revelation 17.8 says that it's the same thing. Your salvation is not some afterthought. Your salvation isn't some rescue plan of God that God had to scramble when Adam fell. It is something that God determined in eternity past. Before anything existed. The Lord chose Jacob first Psalm 134 says 135:4 says, "We're called the elect, the chosen of God." Acts 13 says, "Many as have been appointed to eternal life. What? Believed. They didn't appoint themselves. God appointed them because He chose them." This word here for chosen has the idea of to take for oneself. God just didn't save you for salvation, he took you for himself. He wants you for himself. How much more do you think that he will keep you from his wrath if he chose you for salvation, chose you to himself because he wants you for himself? Do you think that God will just give up what is his, what he has chosen for himself? Election is God's way of saving some. It's based in his infinite love. And so he says, listen, God, you're beloved by God. You're chosen by God. He chose you in eternity past. You don't have to worry about God's wrath. You don't have to be in a fuss. You don't have to think that you're going to face the day of the Lord, because guess what? He set his love upon you. He chose you for himself. And he chose you, point number three, not just for choosing you, not just loving you, but he saved you for salvation through sanctification by the spirit and faith in the truth. You're eternally loved, you're eternally chosen, and guess what? You've been saved from eternity. He saved you. In other words, he chose you for salvation. He saved you from what? What, do you, what is salvation? What is he saving you from? He's saving you from his wrath. That's your problem. If you're unsaved, you're, you don't need to be saved from Satan. You need to be saved from God because God is the one who demands the price for sin. And so he has saved us, saved us from wrath. Second Timothy 1.9 says, Who saved us and called us with a holy calling, not according to our works, but according to his purpose and grace, which was granted us in Christ Jesus from all eternity. He saved us from his wrath. Now, there's two things that go with this. How how did he save us? How did that salvation come upon, upon us? First of all, by sanctification by the Spirit, and secondly, by faith in the truth. Now, sanctification by the Spirit. Now, when we think of sanctification, we recognize there's two categories for sanctification, and we need to get them right because much of church history is adrift because these two have two ideas have not been kept apart. First of all, sanctification means to be set apart for God. In other words, set apart for God and set apart from sin. Secondly, it can mean progressive sanctification, which means becoming in practice what you are in position, meaning that you become more righteous in your behavior as God continues to renew your mind and as you become obedient to the word and the Holy Spirit. Well, the sanctification that's being used here is not of the progressive sanctification, but of the positional sanctification where you are set apart to God from sin. This is the initial sense that takes place at salvation. He separates you from sin. 1 Corinthians 6.11 says, Such were some of you, but you were washed. You were what? Sanctified but you were justified in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. You were set apart from sin at your salvation. When that takes place, you you get a new nature. That's the new birth. This is what we would call in Christianity being born again. You are a born again believer. You are transferred again from the kingdom of darkness into the kingdom of what? Light. This is what Titus talked about in Titus 3, 5. He saved us not on the basis of deeds which we have done in righteousness, but according to his mercy by the washing of regeneration, the renewing of the Holy Spirit. He set you apart from sin as he regenerates you and sets you apart from him. Galatians 6, 5. You are a new creature. Old things are passed away and everything becomes new. You're born of the Spirit. You're begotten of the Holy Spirit. And so God has chosen you, loved you, saved you by the power of the Holy Spirit so that you may have the, be a possessor of eternal life, a temple now of the Holy Spirit. That is yours. Well, along with the spirit as, it work, as he works in our lives is also tied to faith in the truth. Faith in the truth. And we would say definitely that the sanctification of the spirit is God's, God's <clears throat> responsibility and salvation. But there's also a responsibility of man and that's faith in the truth. In other words, you have to believe the truth. Again, this refers to the gospel. This refers to that which is true. It's a faith, not a... Not a uh, salvation is a, is a gift of God, not of works as any man should boast. To as many as believe or receive, he gave the power to become the sons of God to those who believe in his name, John one twelve. And he says, listen... There's a sense in which we are what? We need to embrace the gospel and the truth. There's a responsibility, a human response in salvation. But just in case you think we're getting too far away from God, who gives us faith? God does, right? For by grace you are saved through what? Faith and what? That not of yourselves that faith is also given to you because when he regenerates you, he now gives you ability to exercise faith. It's given to you. But there's still the necessity, right, for you to respond in faith and repentance because election doesn't save anybody. Faith and, and repentance does. Understanding that those are both granted by God to you. It's interesting because they're now told to believe or to have faith in truth not even the truth but truth what is what is genuine what is real the what they believe is has the quality of truth and there's this contrast between those who have what believed a lie they've been deluded they have believed and been deceived by what is completely what characterized by being false and he says you're not like them because you have been saved. You have been sanctified by the Spirit. And now you have what? Faith in the truth because you have believed not what is false, but what is true. You have received what? A love for the truth. He says, therefore, you know that you're not destined for wrath. In fact, he says, you, you were worried about future but God from eternity past has already determined it you've been chosen in the past God's love is put upon you his purposes and his plans to regenerate you to save you from his wrath to give you new life you're no longer in the old Adam you're in the new Adam Jesus Christ you're new in the inside and you're regenerated new person inside what loves the truth right He has breathed life. He's breathed life into your old nature and made it new, given it life. You're part of those who love the truth so as to be what? Saved. Now we can say, I confess Jesus is Lord and believe in my heart that God has raised him from the dead and you are what? Saved. So we see the work, continuing work of God in salvation. He set his love upon us. He chose us. He saved us. Number four, he called us called us. It was for this he called you through our gospel. It is th- through this that God has called you through our gospel. Now it's interesting. Here is again the call. This word call here refers to the, to the effectual call of God. Often it's called the irresistible call, but I think effectual call is, is a better term because it indicates That the call is effective in what it does. In other words, when God calls you to salvation, you come. He called you out of darkness into what? His marvelous light. Now notice in that verse, and we said this before, he doesn't say come to the light. He said he called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. That is exactly where you went. It wasn't an invitation that just was, you know, you can come if you want to. It was like a summons that made you go. It pulled you out like a, we could almost say, well, I don't know if we should use Star Trek from the pulpit, but it's almost like a tractor beam pulled you, right? He called, pulled you, and you came, right? He called you through the gospel, Now, notice this. He did this. He just didn't download salvation from out of the sky. He said it's through our gospel. Through our gospel. In other words, the gospel needed to be proclaimed, the truths of the Word of God had to be spoken. You can also read the Word of God and get saved. But the idea is that there had to be an understanding of the gospel and the truths you don 't just God just doesn 't come come around and then just save someone out of in a field somewhere who 's never heard the gospel. God uses the gospel he 's given us the ministry of reconciliation and these men these missionaries and Paul came and they gave the gospel to them and that was the means by which God. Through the Holy Spirit, then what called them to salvation, regenerated them, and made them new. And it was effective. First Corinthians one says, The foolishness of the gospel preached, he uses that what to save. Romans ten fourteen, how will they believe on him who they have not heard? In other words, the the gospel needs to be preached. But ultimately, it is the work of God in the heart that produces what? Salvation. You can't save anyone by giving them the gospel. That's not your job. Your job is simply to give people the gospel and let God work in the heart. Remember in 1 Corinthians chapter 1, we have this idea of the outward call, the gospel, and the inward call of God. 1 Corinthians 1.23 But we preach Christ crucified to Jews a stumbling block and to Gentiles what? Foolishness. That's the natural response of the gospel to men. We don't have people out there seeking God. In fact, Paul tells us in Romans 3 that no one seeks God. When they hear the gospel, they see it as a stumbling block, it's foolishness. But to those who are called, both Jews and Greeks, Christ, the power of God and the wisdom of God. In other words, there is a group of people who are the called, and when they hear that message of the gospel, they get what? Saved. God gives that internal call and he regenerates them and they come to, in faith and repentance. So God has called us with an irresistible call. He called us out of darkness and brought us into light. He opened our spiritual eyes so that we were no longer spiritually blind. He infused spiritual life into our dead spiritual nature and brought life, heavenly life. Romans 8.30 And whom he predestined, he called. And these whom he called, he justified. He called us to himself. Paul saying to them, listen Thessalonians, you're, you're fussing, you're worried about what's happening, you're losing your mind, you've, you've strayed from the truth, your emotions are all over the place, you think you're in the day of the Lord. He says, don't you see God's sovereign working in salvation? Don't you see where you're headed? He set his love upon you, he chose you, he saved you, he called you. And ultimately, point five, don't you see where you're headed? You're not headed for wrath, you're headed for what? To be glorified by God, that you may gain the glory of our Lord Jesus Christ. He said, we saved you, God saved you, he sanctified you, he called you, he called you to himself that you what may gain with, with a view to. This is, what he, this is why he called you. This is why he saved you. Now notice this. To gain the glory of our Lord Jesus Christ. That's a stunning statement. To gain the glory of our Lord Jesus Christ, to attain, to get possession, to, to make it your own, to acquire... And again the idea here isn't that they earned it, it's not that somehow they they did something to, to so that they were able to grab it, but rather that it was given to them. There was nothing that they could do to earn it, but rather it was a gracious gift that was given by God. It is accomplished solely by God without human merit. And he says, you have gained what the glory of our Lord Jesus Christ, the glory, the splendor and honor which belong to the Lord Jesus Christ as exalted at the right hand of God. One gains the glory of Christ by the work of God's salvation, not by your effort. And ultimately you will be what? Like Christ. When Colossians 3, 4, when Christ, who is our life, is revealed, then you also will be revealed with him in glory. You will be revealed with him in glory. 2 Corinthians 3.18 But we all with unveiled face, beholding as in the mirror the glory of the Lord, are being transformed into the same image from glory to glory. You're being transformed now into the image of our Lord Jesus Christ, from glory to glory, just as from the Spirit. 1 John tells us, See how great the love of the Father has bestowed on us that we should be called children of God such as we are. For this reason the world does not know us because we did not know him. Beloved, now we are children of God and it has not appeared as yet what we will be for we know that when he appears we will be like him because we will see him just as he is. That's astounding. We're going to be what? Just like him. We, as much as we can be perfected in, as a created being, we will be in the glory of the Lord Jesus Christ. In other words, you are going to walk around in eternity and you're going you're to walk like Christ, you're going to talk like Christ, and you're going to affirm everything that Christ affirms. We often talk about imitation being the highest form of flattery. That's exactly what's going to happen to you in eternity. And you are going to glorify the Lord Jesus Christ by imitating him and being as close as you can as a created being in his image. You will be morally perfect. You will worship him. You will make much about him in eternity. That will be who you are. Walking around praising him, worshiping him, acting like him, and doing exactly what Adam failed to do to demonstrate to the world at that time who God was through his behavior. And that will be you. You will gain the glory of our Lord Jesus Christ. We often forget that we were saved for this, right? Romans 8:29. For those he foreknow, he also predestined to be what? Become conform to the image of his son, so that he would be what? The firstborn among many brethren. In other words, you were saved to be what? Conformed to the image of his son. That's what you were conformed to be. And then he can, continues on in that passage, and, and, and this is amazing. And th- these whom he predestined, he also called, and those whom he called, he justified, and those whom he justified, what? He also glorified. You know what that means? You're gaining the glory of our Lord Jesus Christ. You're gaining the glory of our Lord Jesus Christ. That's astounding. And Paul says to the Thessalonians, look what you've been chosen for. You're worried about being in the day of the Lord. You think that you're all upset about everything. All you have to do is look at God's work and salvation and know that you are not destined for his wrath. You are not destined for the day of the Lord. You will never face his wrath. You've been chosen for glory, not wrath. You've been chosen for eternal blessing, not punishment. You will experience the kindness of God, not his displeasure. As one writer said, splendor, honor, exaltation, reward, perfection, holiness, blessing, all the glories of heaven. That's why God chose you in eternity past, for glory in eternity future. It's interesting. We're never ever called to look for the antichrist in scripture. We're only told to look what? Forward to our Lord Jesus Christ. And so this is where we look. This is why we are called to this because we won't face God's wrath. We won't face the antichrist. We won't have to face any of that. So we look forward to what? Christ coming and look forward to gaining his glory. If we can grasp God's sovereign eternal purposes in salvation and that God's determination in eternity past will determine our future, then we have nothing to fear. And we We as believers should be the happiest people on earth. We should be the most joyful people on earth. We should have no anxieties, no fears. We should have no concerns. We have been chosen in eternity past for future glory. Paul says in verse 15, So then, brethren, stand firm and Hold to the traditions which you were taught. Therefore, stand firm. Rejoice, knowing that we will never face God's wrath because God is sovereign in salvation and what he has determined and decreed from eternity past will come true because he is sovereign, he is all-powerful and he has determined it by the kind intention of his will. Let's close in prayer. Heavenly Father, again, we thank you for your word. We thank you for this reminder this morning of your sovereign purposes and that we need not fear the future. We we need not fear your wrath because we are destined for glory. We praise and thank you that you are sovereign in this and therefore we, like Paul, owe you a debt of gratitude for our so great salvation. I pray that you will make these truths precious to us and that we will take them to our heart and recognize the comfort that comes in yielding to the sovereignty of our God. To take these truths, work them deep in our heart, I pray in your name, amen.